0: Morning, everybody. Welcome to the chapel's live stream today. We ask that where you're at, you join us in worship this morning. God of creation, God of all creation, Lord of heaven's light, descended into evil's darkest night. Infinitely holy, your perfections know no end. Selflessly, you died my rightful death. By this we know love that he laid down his life. God's very own son came from heaven to die. Suspended he hung as he shed his own blood. Forsaken, forsaken man of sorrows, hated by all men. You willingly surrendered for my sin. The scornfully derided, yet silent. Suspended he hung As he shed his own blood What grace in his pardon By this we know love Sing by this By this we know love That he laid down life. God's very own Son came from heaven to die. Suspended He hung as He shed His own blood. What grace in His pardon. By this, by this we know. he shed his own blood, when grace in his pardon, by Sing Man of Sorrows. i The curse of sin has no hold on me, who the Son.
1: Righteousness to us in Christ. God, it is something we cannot fully fathom. We cannot wrap our minds around. And God, when we feel so unholy and so unworthy, when we feel deflated or alone or in despair, may we remember. That the righteousness of God has been given to us in Christ, and we can we can take hold of that and claim that over our lives. And so I just speak that over us right now, God, over everyone that is in um, this room, everyone that is watching online. May hope live in our hearts. May holiness and goodness just fall upon us. The holiness and the goodness of God, the God we serve. That we are not our own saviors. We don't have to look to ourselves to um, bear the weight of whatever burdens are in our lives right now, God, the circumstances around us that are beyond COVID-19, whatever each of us is facing, we can give those to you and you carry them. You carry them and we get to trade yokes. Your word says that, your word promises that, that we take your yoke upon us and it is light and it is easy and so we just receive that now, God, we receive that. Forgive us for when we have, we've held so tightly to the heavy burden and it was never, ever, ever ours to hold. Please forgive us, God, and help us, help us to just lay down our burdens at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the cross, God. And to remember that you, you have already separated, um, our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. And whatever we are facing in our daily lives, you've separated that from us as well. And you have put us in your strong tower. Your word says that you are our strong tower and that the righteous run into that tower and they are saved. So we just receive that, God. We just receive that now. And we pray in Jesus' name that you would speak through Pastor Tim, that we would just continue this time of worship through the word of God. And that in our hearts, there would be a settling and a peace that replaces all the disruption, all the chaos, that we get to trade those in, Lord, and just receive your peace right now. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' powerful name, I pray. Amen. Amen.
2: Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We want to welcome you to our services here at the chapel. Uh, If you're joining us online, we... uh, Want to just let you know that if you have any questions that you would like to direct to us at the church, uh, you can do that by going to the church website and using the administrator's uh, email, and uh, you can reach out to us and get any questions answered that you might have. Uh, as we've walked through this season of uh, COVID and uh, social distancing and having our churches effectively physically closed, not actually closed, but physically closed, and having our services online. Uh, We've kind of been working through a discussion with the leadership team of the chapel. The elders have been uh, praying on a regular basis and meeting on a regular basis to discuss uh, a path forward. Uh, We're blessed with a great group of leaders in our church family. Uh, We want you to know that our gathering together is a crucial part of what God has called us to do as a church Uh, And so it's, I think, important for me to say this, that what each of us want individually as elders uh, at some level is a little bit different than what may be the wisest and best path forward. Uh, We are not, as a leadership team, inclined to ignore the directives of the government officials at this time. Uh, Some churches are taking a different stance on that. We are not judging them. Uh, we're just simply saying that we feel that we should, in, at some level, uh, be in compliance with the uh, laws that are being established by the government that God, the Word of God tells us, has established. So we are uh, seeking to uh, lay out a plan and a path forward uh, that will honor those directives and also will meet the needs of our church family as quickly As possible. One of the concerns that we have as a pastoral team is that issues like this for churches can become very divisive. Uh, People can start to take sides and, and value their opinions over the facts. So we want to be sure that we're operating based on the facts to the best of our ability as a leadership team to do what is right and what is best for our church family. And we are also conscious of the witness that we have as a church within our community. So there's a lot of little moving pieces that we're taking into account as we... uh, analyze where we stand and uh, begin to lay out plans to start our public gatherings together. So please stay tuned, uh, watch online, watch on email, we will be giving you updates as soon as new information is available. Uh, We desperately want to ask you to be praying for us as a leadership team that we will know and discern God's will and plan for us in this season. So we deeply covet your prayers. I want to lead us in prayer this morning before we go into the Word of God. Our Father, we are thankful that we have this medium, this uh, venue to proclaim and communicate truth in a time when we are not able to be together. Uh, thank you for Don and Mark who, on a weekly basis, have sacrificed a lot of time so that uh, we're producing out of this context, out of this small church, Uh, the best quality that uh, we can using the resources and skills that are present. So thank you for those who are serving to make this possible on a weekly basis. Uh, Father, as we look at our country this week, there is no doubt that we are walking through a season of great challenge, of great complexity. And uh, I pray, God, that as a church, as your church, not just the chapel, but your church, nationwide in america i pray that we will be wise and discerning about how we can best use our god-given influence to make positive differences in our communities Uh, lord give us your insight help us to understand how the gospel informs and teaches us how to love people who have gone through seasons of struggle father we want to know that and we want to do that for your glory i pray for those in our church family who have been wrestling with seasons of sickness Uh, Particularly, we lift up the Kelly family and our dear sister Diana. Uh, God, our prayer for her on a consistent basis is that your healing hand would rest on her life and preserve her life for your glory. So we pray that over her. I pray over her dear children, over Victor. God, your grace and sustaining favor to be manifested so beautifully and clearly in their lives. God, for people within our church family, we pray, who... The distancing has created some form of emotional distress or maybe even depression. Uh, God, the struggles that we have in isolation are vast. And so, God, I pray that you will give wisdom to various individuals within our church, wisdom about how to uh, reach out to and assist those uh, that are struggling in that way. God, open our eyes so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus in our church community, and in our broader community. I ask your blessing to rest now on your word. God, we come on a weekly basis to speak your truth as best we can as a pastoral team. And we pray that your truth will settle into our hearts today. And we pray that your truth, illuminated by the work of your spirit, would would find a target as it is proclaimed today, and that it would yield positive, God-glorifying, Christ-exalting change in each of our lives this week. So take your word now, God. Make it mighty, make it powerful, and by it, change us, I ask. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to ask you to begin reading with me in verse 3. Now, we've been studying through a passage of Scripture that deals with a much broader context. It begins in verse 27 of chapter 1, where it says that we have been called by God to live worthy of the gospel. Now, this text, if you you kind of spread out and understand this text in a broader setting, it's Paul writing a letter from prison saying that the chains that God has allowed him to endure have actually become a vehicle for driving unity and proclamation in the church. And in this context, Paul is going to begin to focus on the attitude that helps us to stand effectively together. Okay, there are many circumstances that often drive division. Thoughts about COVID, thoughts about the riots, they can tend to drive wedges between people. Paul in this context is going to, uh, he's going to speak about an attitude that if we own it, embrace it, we will find that it by the grace of God begins to transform our relationships with one another. So let's begin reading in chapter 2 and verse 3, Paul's Directive. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit; rather, in humility value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the well-being or interest of others. In your relationships with with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue should acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. You know, we live in an interesting era. Uh, uh, The rise of the internet, the rise of social media has driven something called Uh, influencers influencers are people who by virtue of this immediate contact with others they're able to shape the decisions and values of other people okay and a lot of times uh, uh, they can monetize their efforts they can gain enough influence over the lives of others that people will pay them to speak about their product or about their perspective Okay, so this idea of influencers seems like a new concept in the world we live in. But if you read through the teachings of Jesus, you will find very quickly that Jesus calls the church to be influencers. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says to his disciples, You are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Both of those metaphors speak about the influence that Jesus anticipates his church would have in the coming age following the work of the cross. God has called the church, you and I, to be people of influence where we live. And he uses those two metaphors, salt and light, to describe the essence or the nature of the influence that he desires us to have. Now, This is a text that speaks very specifically about how we can maximize our influence by being conscious of our attitude as believers. Verses 1 and 2 talked about the benefits of the Christian community. It talks about the blessings that we have enjoyed in Jesus. And here's what Paul says. If in Christ you have experienced certain benefits and blessings, then Paul says... Your life should be different because of that experience. Okay, so the appeal is not so much to deep theology as it is to practical theology, to the experiential side of Christian life, where there is an abiding joy and consolation in Christ that deeply influences my life and changes how I relate to others, born out of gratitude. For what Christ has done for me. So it is a call to believers who are enjoying the benefits of relating to Christ. And it calls us to take those benefits and pass them on to the world around us. That is the essence of our influencing our world. We enjoy benefits from being united in Christ. We enjoy the fellowship with the Spirit of God. And those blessings should overwhelm us and cause there to be out of our lives an overflow of abundance of joy that changes the world around us heart by heart. That's what God has called us to be. So, the question I want you to ask this morning is, how can I maximize my influence as a child of God? How can I have the deepest, greatest, broadest impact on the world around me? And the first directive that Paul's going to give is found in verse 3. Value the preciousness of others. Okay? Don't, when you look at a mass of people, don't simply see a large number of individuals see faces, see lives, see people that God can use you to make a difference in their life. All right, have a different perspective when you look at people. And the way that Paul encourages that that is by confronting a very natural tendency that I have, and I hope that you're willing to admit that you have. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. The idea of selfish ambition very simply is this. It is, it is my natural tendency to be self-promoting. My natural tendency for life to be about me, about my happiness. And when you get in my space and you mess with my stuff or my people, I'm going to give you a strong reaction. All right, that's the, that's the mindset or the attitude that Paul is confronting. And I want you to notice in verse 3, he says it, do nothing out of selfish ambition, instead, okay, take the normal tendency, put it aside, and replace it with a new outlook. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. Well, that's a profound call, a profound statement. Humility, if I'm going to define it, I think in, the, in this context, humility is living with no sense of entitlement, with no demand on others. Okay, humility does not insist on its rights. It instead chooses to be self-effacing and selfless in its relationship with others. So humility is living with no sense of entitlement or demand. It counts others, the text says, as more precious or more valuable than oneself. Now that idea of counting someone more valuable than yourself does not mean That certain people don't have unique gifts which set them apart from others. Okay? Uh, Some people are, let's say, great with mathematics. Okay? It's not saying that the kid in school who's great with mathematics should deny that he's good with mathematics. It's just simply saying that he he shouldn't demand that people treat him in light of that truth. He should live in relationship with others as a common person. Okay, it's the ability to know that there is great gifting present, but to relate to others without thought of that. Okay, does that make sense? So that's, that's what Paul calls us to, to count others, to focus on the preciousness of others, to regard them as more important than yourself, that they are worthy objects of God-given affection poured out of my life for their benefit into their lives. Now, when we were raising our children, uh, and and maybe a little newsflash this morning is that our daughter, Erica, got married last Sunday morning to Bobby Bresni, okay? Some of you didn't know that. This is all rather quick in its occurrence, but we had a beautiful time, and my wife and I are, for the first time in our lives, truly free, okay? All three of our girls are now out on their own, okay? Um, One of the things that we taught our girls as we were raising them, we have three daughters, Rebecca, Erica, and Jessica, as we were raising them, one of, the, one of the core principles that was part of our parenting philosophy that we picked up from a parenting class that we took was called the seven pillars of respect, okay? The premise of the seven pillars was this. If you establish practical ways that people can demonstrate the preciousness of those around them, it will deeply impact their character, Okay? If you could teach people how to understand, how to, in practical steps, acknowledge the preciousness of others, the character of your child will be deeply impacted and influenced. Let me give you an illustration of some of the pillars of respect that we use. We had one pillar called respect for age, okay, meaning if you're in, in a room and you're with people that are older than you, we as your parents have an expectation that you will address them with a term that that, that indicates some degree of honor, okay? So we told our children as we were raising that when you address adults, we expect you to call them Mr. or Miss, okay? It's an honorific. It's simply a way of acknowledging that, that because of your age, God has given you a status that is different than mine at some level. It was simply a statement of respect, okay? So that's one of the things we did. The other thing we did is when we were in church, we told our daughters, you were not allowed to run in church. Now, is running in a church building prohibited in Scripture? Right? Is there a verse that says, thou shalt not run in the sanctuary? The answer is no. Well, then why would I give my kids a moral imperative that says, no running in church? Here's why. If you're running in church causes an elderly gentleman or woman to feel uncomfortable, then your running fails to value the preciousness of that individual. Does that make sense? Okay, the reason you walk around senior citizens is your running makes them nervous that they might fall and experience a hazard, okay? So that preciousness of them is acknowledged by a change in how I conduct myself physically in their presence, We also had the pillar of respect for property, okay? This is not one that I personally liked at certain levels. The illustration that the teacher used was the illustration of being in the uh, shopper parking lot, and you've emptied your grocery cart, and the corral for the grocery carts is about 100 feet away, and it's raining. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried this. The experiment is, can I get, even though it's a windy day, can I get this cart to sit stationary for three seconds so that I can turn around and go to my car and get out of here as dry as possible, okay? Or will I value the person that comes behind me who's looking for a parking spot and walk that cart over at great personal sacrifice, put it in the crowd, because that is the respectable thing to do, okay? Also use the illustration of litter, Why shouldn't I litter? I shouldn't litter because other people are going to drive down that road behind me and the trash that I leave behind will say something negative to them. It devalues them. It disrespects them. And taking care of my litter and my trash says, I value the preciousness of others. Okay, so you have to begin to think as a parent in very practical ways about helping your children to understand what it is to value others. We also had the pillar of respect for siblings. You are not allowed to yell at your sibling. You are not allowed to hit your sibling. It's unacceptable. I told my girls, there's not a lot that bothers me. There's a lot of family humor uh, that existed in our dwelling place, things that I will not speak of. But the thing I told my kids that I don't have any tolerance for is for you yelling at each other or for you hitting each other. That will draw a very firm response. Why? That is your sister in the context of our home. You need to let them know that they are precious to you by how you treat them. Okay? So we can't have selfishness that grabs things and says it's mine. No. You value the preciousness of others by sharing your resources with them, by sharing affection for them, not by yelling at them, not by grabbing things from them, not by hitting them. Does that make sense? So there's a very practical way in which we taught our children this powerful, basic biblical principle that will transform culture. If we begin to value the preciousness of others, an amazing transformation— will come about in our culture. My problem is that I tend to value my own preciousness before I value the preciousness of others. I'm embarrassed to admit that as a pastor, but that is the God's honest truth, that I have to fight to keep others and view others and see others, as Paul says, as more important than myself. I need to walk in humility. I need not to insist on my rights but I instead need to protect the rights of those around me as a way to value their preciousness. Jesus confronts this natural tendency by saying, whoever wants to be first among you must become servant of all. Do you see? To be great in the kingdom of God is to be a person who comes under, supports, and values the preciousness of people around them. That's the calling of this text. The way that we fight for unity that is desperately needed in difficult times is by looking at those around me and saying, even though I don't like them, God has called me to love them and to influence them and to do good for them and ultimately to have a shift in my sinful thinking to see them like Christ sees them and to value them in a way that literally changes my behavior. You know, in a racially charged era like we are in right now, A lot of our problems, historically and currently, clearly come from a failure to value the preciousness of every life. I didn't choose this text for today. This is the text I had chosen months ago for today. And I think it's fascinating that the real genuine shift that is needed in our culture is a change in how we see each other. This text hits the nail on the head most of the systemic problems that are present in cultures are rooted in selfish ambition and pride. And they can only be changed by humility and understanding that every life created by God is precious, has dignity, and has the right to to the pursuit of happiness. So may God help us first to see that we need to embrace this concept of the preciousness of others. Some of us may need to admit, admit, confess, and confront this natural tendency that has deeply affected our outlook on others and our relationship with others. So here's the question. How can I best develop a mindset that says others are more precious than me? All right, how do I get there? This text is going to move, in verse 5, into a very broad sweeping poetic you'll see the way it is in your text it's set up in staccato as poetry it is a poetic um picture of the work of christ that that exalts jesus as the exemplar of one who understood and practically valued the preciousness preciousness of everybody in his sphere of influence how do I become a person that values others? Cultivate the outlook or mindset of Jesus. So I defeat selfish ambition by cultivating and valuing and understanding of the outlook of Christ till it saturates my life and begins to change who I am. So verse 5, here's what Paul says. Paul says, in your relationships with one another. That's the setting. Okay, in which this transformation takes place. In your life together as believers. Have the same mindset as that of Jesus. Okay, have the perspective. Have the view that Jesus had. And then what he's going to do, he's going to go into a a, a very high level understanding of the cross work of Christ and show us how the cross work of Christ Deep theology, high theology, informs my daily practical theology. Okay? So gaze at the high theology that is bound up in the work of Christ till it leaks over into your daily life. So that what is written here is not simply to give me a better understanding or a clearer understanding of what Jesus did It's written to change my daily life. It is not so that I can simply admire Jesus from a distance. It's so that I, in my daily practical life, begin to imitate the heart of Christ. May God help us because this is not easy territory. So what the text is going to focus on is two things. It's going to look at what Jesus refused to do, and then it's going to look at what Jesus did. Okay, so let's first look at what Jesus refused to do. Here's what it says, verse 6. It says, had the mindset of Jesus, who, being in very nature God, he was on par with, equal to, in person and essence, God himself. He did not consider equality with God something to be used for personal advantage. Now, folks, This is exalted. This is talking about the very nature and essence of Christ. This is at some level mystery. Okay, I'm saying it. If you said, Tim, do you fully grasp and understand it? No, no, I don't. But I understand that the text is asserting that when Jesus came to earth in physical form, it was very God in human flesh among us. To serve us, to love us, to redeem us, to rescue us, to regenerate us. That's what he came to do. What did he do? He did not cling. That idea means he didn't hang on to. He didn't use the, you know, the four-letter word of toddlers, mine. He didn't grasp at his own rights and insisted people treat him with respect. He humbled himself so that he can meet my greatest need folks may god give us this heart of christ that does not cling that does not seek personal benefit that does not advantage oneself based on one's position in life it is so easy for us once we have attained a certain position to want people to treat us in light of that position jesus never lived that way and he prohibits us from doing so because it will always drive divisions that will have historic consequences in human culture Jesus gave up didn't cling to his status so that he could meet our deepest need at greatest cost this attitude enabled the saving mission of Calvary so he doesn't cling to his status as God he doesn't demand that people treat him as if he is God though he was Verses 7 and 8 tell us four decisive steps downward that Jesus took. This is his self-humiliation stated in a hymn. The first, Verse 7 says this, rather he made himself nothing. The idea is he emptied himself. He acted as if all the attributes were not of consequence in regard to how people treated him. He made himself nothing. The idea is an an idiomatic statement. It doesn't mean that Jesus changed his very person. No, he just simply set aside the demand to be treated in that way. So that in that frame of mind, he can move towards the cross to bear the consequence of my sin. He made himself nothing. He didn't act like a commoner, he became a commoner. He didn't act like the friends of sinners, he was the friend of sinners. He was the king who came off the throne to sit and eat with commoners, which is the essence of this text. He does not demand that his disciples and that the crowds treat him like he deserves to be treated and should be treated. He emptied himself. Secondly, the text says he took upon himself the form of a servant. Notice how it says it. He took on the very nature of a servant. Folks, here's what it means. He became, for me and for you, a true and real servant. The place that this is most clearly seen in John chapter 13, or is in John chapter 13, where Jesus takes off the robes ties a towel around his waist, and dons takes on the very form of a servant that was so clear and so real to his disciples that they had a visceral reaction to the scene that God would wash my feet. Peter's response, no way. You're the king of the universe. You deserve all honor and glory. What did Jesus do? He refused to grasp at what was rightfully his so that he could freely, Meet the needs of those around him in a most glorious way in this text. Jesus would then say to his disciples, you saw what I did. If you do it, people will know you're my disciples. If you put aside your own rights and if you act in deepest humility like a servant, you will capture and influence a watching world. Verse 7 says he was made in human form. That is, very God took on a limited, finite form. He was subject to hunger, to thirst. He wept. He was tired. He, as he looked at the cross, was deeply troubled. That's how far down he had come. That's how far away from his rights he had put himself. So that he could move for the sake of Tim Hof and you towards the cross. He became wholly human while still being 100% God. That's mystery. My professor, Dr. Warren Van Hetlow, used to say it this way. He used to say, remaining what he always had been, God, he became what he never had been, man. Ever so, to remain. Folks, that is the glory of the gospel. That in heaven, I will live for eternity with the God-man who counted himself nothing so that he could make something of a sinner like you and I. That is the glory of this call. And then verse 8 says this. It says, in being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, but not just any death, even death on a cross. You know, we live in a world where the cross is domesticated and beautified, truly for a lot of people. It's just a symbol. But in the ancient world, the cross was a symbol that evoked horror. It was reserved only for slaves, anarchists, and rebels. And only Caesar himself could call for the death of a common citizen of the Roman Empire. Only Caesar himself. It was the most cruel of deaths, And the Old Testament and the New Testament both say the same thing. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It tells us the depth that Jesus went to to secure my salvation and my redemption. And Jesus did not simply fall into this circumstance. He said to Pilate, Pilate, no one takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down. That's how self-humbling Jesus was. That he took this step of, as the Son of Man, Mark 10.45 says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve by giving his life a freedom price for many. How? By the cross. He stood in my place, took the brunt of God's judgment that I justly deserved so that I could be, by his grace, set free. 1 Peter 2, 24 says it this way. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. For by his wounds, by his self-humbling, I am free. One writer speaking of this work of Christ said this. He said he came to pay a debt that he did not owe because we owed a debt that we could not pay Folks, it is not until you see your true nature, your true selfish ambition, your true need for the help of God that you can experience the full and glorious work that Jesus Christ accomplished for you. It's why the songwriter, I believe, put it this way. He said, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, my highest achievement, I count as loss and At the foot of the cross, I pour contempt on all my pride. Folks, here's what we need. We need to come to a place where we have contempt for the pride that is so alive and well inside of us. That we would come to a place where we begin to despise that sinful tendency, that we begin to hate that sinful tendency and then take the directive of Christ, The directive of Christ is deny yourself, take up the cross and follow me. Come to a point in your life where you make a definitive decision to say goodbye to selfish ambition and to begin the whole and true life of Christ. The cross is an act of love that satisfies the demands of holiness so that sinners like you and I could be free by the sacrifice of Christ. And once you're freed by it, this is what Paul saying in verses 1 and 2. The entailments of the gospel begin to thrill you. You realize that your eternal destiny has been changed forever. You realize that your life has invaded, been invaded by the love of God. That love is being poured out in your heart by the Spirit. That experience of God's grace, saving, transforming, regenerating, changing, sanctifying, does what? It begins to put joy in your life. It frees you from having to live for self. And it causes you. To want to live for the benefit and joy of others. It, one writer said, the cross is the high watermark of the demonstration of God's love for us. And it stands as the symbol of our shame, or sinfulness, but also the symbol of our freedom. So through the selflessness of Christ, my destiny, my life currently is utterly transformed and changed may we so gaze at christ that we are changed may this deep theology of the cross inform my daily decisions may an understanding of what it cost christ to come and save me may an understanding of that change how i live my life today may it change how i relate to people that irritate me may it change how a young person relates to a sibling May it change how someone who struggled in their neighborhood, may it change how they relate to the difficult neighbor. Why? Because God did not give me what I deserve. How dare I, a forgiven sinner, hold everybody else to the highest standard and demand my own rights? May God help us. This text is interesting to me because it argues from the greater to the lesser. Okay? Now follow what I'm saying. The greater is Jesus. He had everything to give up. He came from heaven to earth. I struggle getting off the kitchen chair to help someone else. What this text begs me to do is understand who Jesus really is. And begin to understand who he really became and why. And let that deep theology inform my practical daily living. Folks, if all this text does is give you a deeper understanding of the intricacies of the work of Christ, may God help you. This text Does not define in great detail the doctrines of justification and sanctification and expiation and propitiation, all those things. It does not go there. Why? The aim of this text is to change you. It's to give you, in poetic form, a glorious, beautiful, exalted view of Jesus that draws you and says, I want to be like that. Okay, that's the purpose of this text. It doesn't want to fill your head. It wants to transform your heart. This text anticipates my greatest sinful tendency, and that is I want life to be about me. And if you don't make me happy, I'll throw throw you down the stairs of life. May God help us to see this great tendency in its true depth of wickedness so that we shudder at the thought that we can be like that. And the grace of God in Christ begins then to transform and alter perspective and make us utterly different people in circumstances where we have been so deeply abused, hurt, wounded, disenfranchised. Let the gospel, let the cross free you from self-promotion and let it make you a servant that becomes a true influencer, true light, true salt in the world that God by his grace has called you to live in. So we have Jesus' humiliation, what he did, and then the text ends with telling us what God did. Here's what it says, therefore, in light of Christ, incredible work for my salvation. God has highly exalted him. He's given him a name. He's pronounced over him a name that is above every name. King of kings. Lord of lords. So that as we look at that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth. That is every possible individual will acknowledge one day that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know, Sometimes people will say to me, Tim, I'm glad you have Jesus. I'm glad Jesus works for you. Folks, I want to tell you something. This text does not trivialize the exalted status of Christ. It, in fact, says that one day, some reluctantly and some joyfully, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is exactly who he said he is. If you don't know him as Lord and Savior, wow, this morning, I beg of you to heed the warning of Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, which says salvation is found in no one else because there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby you must be saved. This text does not trivialize. It does not take lightly how you respond to Jesus. It calls you to acknowledge his exalted status, though he humbled himself. Father has acknowledged that in spite of all that, he is still king of kings. It says that in his name, every knee will bow to the glory of God the Father. If you've never trusted him, I pray this morning that you would humble yourself and come and know these blessings. James chapter 4 and verse 10 gives us a a call practical out of this text, I think. It says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will pick you up. We often don't want to walk the low road of humility for fear of missing out, for fear of taking a hit and never getting justice. Jesus anticipates our profound tendency. God has called us to be influencers. Our world is in desperate need of influencers. A world so ripped and so shredded by struggle and trouble and strife desperately needs to see people engaging and making a difference in the lives of others. I want to encourage you this morning to ask God to give you a heart that understands the preciousness of others. Mom and dad, I want to encourage you to start teaching your children the importance of the preciousness of others because it will have a deep impact on who they are and who they become. That is an unavoidable fact. If you let them go down the road of selfishness, if you treat them like king and queen of the universe, you give them everything they want, you will ruin them. But if you teach them what it is to live selflessly and to serve others honorably, to care genuinely about the needs of people around them by doing it yourself, the model of Jesus will deeply influence and bless your home for the glory of God. May God help us to get serious about owning the mindset of Jesus. In times like the present, we must recapture the value of putting skin on Jesus as visible witness that leads to verbal discussion of the glorious truth about the gospel. We need to remember that our passivity and inaction silences witness. And we also need to remember that our actions for Christ selfless validate and proclaim witness. May God help us as the church to own the example of Christ, to understand it to the degree that it begins to deeply influence our character and behavior. And that we become a church, we become people, we become individuals who understand that every person around us, by God's sovereign mandate, is precious and valuable. Jesus put it in this way. He said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. But he said the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Give people the dignity and honor. Husband, give to your wife the honor and dignity that she deserves. Wife, give to your husband the honor and respect and dignity that he deserves. Mom and dad, treat your children with respect. Expect something better of them. Expect them to be people who understand the preciousness of every person around them. May we be a church rising to influence the culture that God has called us to live in. And may we find practical ways to make a difference for the glory of God. If you're here this morning, you're listening this morning and never trusted Christ, this morning here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to gaze at the one who gave up everything for your benefit. I want you to cry out to Jesus this morning, very simply saying, Jesus, I am a sinner for whom you died. And today I want to know you as my Lord and Savior of my life. I want you to rescue me from my sin and make me your child today. Would you pray that prayer? If you did, and encourage you, just email us at the chapel. We'll be glad to send you a Bible, send you some information, answer any questions that you might have via phone call, Zoom, whatever it might be. We want to help you come to know this glorious and precious Lord Jesus Christ. And church, my prayer for you this morning, through this week has been that God would make us a people who understand that every life matters. That God would make us people who value the preciousness of others in how we live out our daily lives because we are overwhelmed by what Christ has done for us. And the natural overflow is that we can't help but care for people in our sphere of influence. May God help us to be influencers for his glory. Let's pray together. Father, uh, for your word this morning, we say thank you. For the truth about Jesus, we say thank you. God, you have called us uh, to travel the, 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 the high road of humility like Christ. And as one writer said, when you travel the high road of humility, you are not likely to encounter heavy traffic. God, I pray that in the chapel, in our community, the high road will become a crowded road. That we will be people who look at Jesus, are changed by beholding him, and begin to live on a higher plane on the road of humility. Help us by your Holy Spirit, to see these truths clearly as we meditate on this text. And may we be changed by beholding the Christ who is exalted in Philippians chapter 2. Help your church, Lord. Help your church. Don't let us sit on the sideline. Don't let us simply critique what's happening Help us to be influencers and agents of change, driven by the Spirit for the glory of God, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all.